Well, it is good to see everyone this uh, Lord's Day morning, and uh, hopefully you have notes uh, in front of you uh, of God's Decree Number 7, uh, Chapter 3 of the London Baptist Confession. And to begin our thinking, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew Chapter 11, Matthew Chapter 11, and uh, two verses that we'll look at uh, a little bit further later on this morning, but Matthew Chapter 11, and then verses 25 and 26. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father. For this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning, the Lord's Day, and uh, the privilege we have to gather together uh, this morning to worship you in glory and glory in thee and delight in thee. I, I thank you for each one that is here this morning and uh, pray that you would give us all insight into your, your holy revelation. I would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit during this time together to uh, just convey your, your word, Lord, in a way that is honoring to thee and pleasing to thee. And I, I pray it would truly be instructive to our minds and our hearts and, and help us in our thinking processes, especially about such a, a weighty uh, subject as the salvation of the soul. So I, I pray it would be honoring to thee and, and help us. Um, and, and we commit our time to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time uh, was our, our sixth uh, study, so we've kind of been in this area of the decrees of God for uh, a while, third chapter of the confession, and our emphasis was upon uh, the third paragraph of that chapter, and we considered um, the, the fact of predestination is clearly affirmed and clearly brought out there, and that this uh, affirmation, this reality is to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, and then what I call the, a sobering alternative to predestination, and that's the end of the paragraph. It's right at the top of your notes there, uh, the end of the, of the third paragraph in the London Baptist Confession. It reads, um, others being left to, the act, to act in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. And since Romans chapter 9, verses 22 was one of the texts which the confession lists. We spent uh, quite a bit of time on that last Lord's Day morning. So in paragraph three, the response to predestination is um, to the praise of his glorious grace. And to others who he has left to act in their sin, it's to the praise of his glorious justice. Um, there are, there's, there's a few differences, as you might know, between uh, the London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession. However, uh, the words in your notes which constitute the last part of um, paragraph 3 in the London Baptist Confession, uh, they do not occur in the third paragraph of the Westminster Confession. Uh, rather, uh, the theme which these verses bring out is more fully dealt with in paragraph 7 of the Westminster Confession, uh, which is not included in the London Baptist Confession, but it is included in your notes. So the second paragraph down where it says WCF 3.7, that's a paragraph that is not included in the London Baptist Confession, it is included in the Westminster Confession, and they elaborate a bit more on this doctrine. Let me read this, we'll come back to this later, but let me just read it to you to kind of orient your mind towards the subject at hand. Uh, the rest of mankind, God was pleased, according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth, 
for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So it, it makes the same point, but it expands upon it um, a little bit. Uh, to put this another way, the Westminster Confession develops more fully a doctrine referred to as uh, what is called reprobation. And I just, as I was approaching this, I was kind of curious as if that's even a term that most of you have heard. Okay, if you've heard the term reprobation, just raise your hand. Okay, uh, okay, good. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray and kind of end it right now. And um, <laughs> go to something else. But, uh, anyway, um, the, the confession um, in chapter 3 indicates that some men are predestinated. Some men are predestinated. The confession... Um, and we think more importantly, um, affirm that out of the, the mass or the totality of mankind, some are saved, some are converted, and some believe in Christ. And then when we, we search the scriptures to find out why is it that some people are converted, why is it that some people do repent and believe on him, our understanding is we arrive, we arrive at texts like Ephesians 1.4, which speaks of being chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Um, and texts like that, which draw our attention to the theme of election and predestination, they answer those questions for us, at least at least for my own mind. When you ask, well, why is anybody saved at a particular point in time? My understanding is because of election, predestination. It's been determined, their, their salvation has been determined by God before the foundation of the world. But we, we might ask, in light of that, what doctrine or what theme or what strain of biblical teaching gives us a, a framework of thought for those who are not elect, for those who are not predestined. And the biblical doctrine that, that helps that understanding is called reprobation. Um, it's a doctrine which is understood in connection with predestination and election. Uh, for example, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology has a chapter entitled Election and Reprobation. Uh, Louis Burkhoff deals with it in his Manual of Christian Doctrine and puts election and reprobation as parts of predestination. So it goes together with um, election, or it's connected with election. And I'll get to some further definition in, in Scripture to substantiate in a moment and add further to this. But um, a part of what would naturally move our minds in this direction is that election, the nature of the case, suggests that there is a rejection of some. That there is a determination to save some, and it, so it implies in the nature of the case, there is also a decision to reject some. Robert Shaw writes, some who allow personal and eternal election deny that there is any such thing as reprobation. Uh, he writes, but the, one, uh, but the one unavoidably follows from the other, for the choice of some must necessarily imply the rejection of others. E election and rejection, or election and reprobation, are co-relative terms. So a, a key point in both cases um, is, is there is a settled, clear determination made on God's part. So that would be kind of a key thought today. There's a settled, clear determination on God's part made before the foundation of the world. And two verses that kind of go together and, and help our thinking here as far as this determination is concerned. One is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then another text, which is in your notes, in all... Uh, Revelation 13.8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the beast, and everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life 
of the Lamb who has been slain. I'm going to quote a little bit here from G.K. Beale, who's written a very helpful commentary on Revelation. And Beale indicates the phrase, Book of Life, appears five other times in the Apocalypse, that is the book of Revelation. In each case, as here, it's a metaphor for saints whose salvation has been determined. So he's saying the book of life is a, a metaphor for saints whose salvation has been determined. Their, their names, he writes, have been entered in the, the census book of the eternal new Jerusalem before history began. And he points out also uh, that this term book of life occurs here as well as Revelation 17:8, uh, where it's um, the book of life from the foundation of the world. The book of life from the foundation of the world. So it expresses the notion of predestination, excuse me, expresses the notion of predestination uh, from the foundation of the world. Uh, he writes that saints were written in the book of life before history began is implied by the fact that the beast worshipers are said not to have been so written. That is, their names were not written in the book of life. Those who give such allegiance to the beast demonstrate that they have not been written in the book of life. The, the phrase from the foundation of the world might affirm a decree of reprobation that took place before creation, whose names were not written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. These two verses together, Ephesians 1, 4, and Revelation 13, 8, help to, to bring out um, this, this, uh, help to bring out um, this idea of a decision, and also that it's a doctrine that's understood in, in conjunction with election. It, it's correlative to the idea of election. Both emphasize God is making a determination, a decision, before the foundation of the world, before history as we know it, before actual human existence to choose to elect some, which requires a conscious, settled decision or determination to pass by or reject others. And the key part of the text, which at least to my mind brings this out, is whose names has not been written in the Book of Life from the foundation of the world. Um, okay, two further thoughts by way of introduction here. Uh, in, in some respects, the doctrine of reprobation it, it's kind of a hard doctrine to consider, and there's a little bit of many that thinks, man, maybe we should just skip this one and go to the next one. But I, I think it is helpful for a couple of reasons. Well, well, Grudem writes this, in many ways the doctrine of reprobation is the most difficult of all the teachings of Scripture for us to think about and accept because it deals with such horrible and eternal consequences for human beings made in the image of God. And John Calvin wrote, the decree is dreadful indeed, I confess. So, in fact, so when I, in preparing for this, it's kind of one that I, I hope is helpful to you. Um, and if you haven't, you, you haven't come across a term, some of you yet, but you will at some point in time. And it's, it's a helpful way to think about those who are non-elect. And the other thing is you just have to, as always, be a Berean Christian and just kind of take the scriptures that we consider and just process them through the crucible of your own, of your own heart and mind. And let me add this also, just a little bit of further introduction, we'll jump into this. But uh, this isn't everything which the scriptures teach about God's thinking with respect to unsaved people. And I have one text here. Ezekiel 33:11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So with that said, in the first place, um, let's consider some definition of what we're, what we're talking about with the idea of reprobation. Let me just, three definitions here. And the first one is to re-quote 
Uh, on the first page of your notes, uh, the, from the Westminster Confession, this is what we're talking about. The rest of mankind, God was pleased, according to his unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. And then Wayne Rudum writes, Reprobation is the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice. And then Louis Burkhoff writes, A decree of God whereby he has determined to pass uh, to pass some men by with the operation of his special grace and to punish them for their sin to the manifestation of his justice. So there's a determination to withhold grace from some. Uh, Burkhoff, in developing this definition, indica indicates it has two parts or a twofold purpose. One, to pass by some in the bestowal of regenerating grace. And, and as we know, this seems to me to be... Um, I fit the very nature of uh, election with respect to um, regarding such a conclusion or arriving at such a conclusion. And then secondly, to assign them to dishonor and to wrath, to the wrath of God for their sins. So to pass by some in the bestowing of regenerated grace and to assign them to dishonor and the wrath of God for their sins. So it has this twofold emphasis, passing by some and dealing with others in accordance with their sins. Secondly, in addition to what we have considered, let me just offer some uh, scriptures in this connection. And, and one of the texts that the Westminster Confession uh, lists that we read at the beginning, um, and Grudem also uses this as well, is Matthew 11, 25 and 26. And, and, it, and it reads, at that time Jesus answered and said, I praise or I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, and notice the language here, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was pleasing in thy sight. So the conclusion here, I think it's an inescapable conclusion, is that you have God acting in two different ways here, hiding or concealing on the one hand and revealing on the other. I think it's just the obvious import of the text. And Grudem's comment in this context, it may, he writes, it may surprise us to see that Jesus can thank God both for hiding the knowledge of salvation from some and revealing it to others. And D.A. Carson wrote in this connection on this text, God is sovereign, free to conceal or reveal as he wills. And then Carson writes, God is dealing with a race of sinners whom he owes nothing. Thus to conceal these things is not an act of injustice, but judgment. It's an act of judgment. And Robert Shaw uh, cites Jude and verse 4, Jude and verse, chapter 1, verse 4, um, which is also in the Westminster Confession. Uh, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long ago, notice, notice the language here, uh, those who were long ago before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So here the applicable words would be marked out for this condemnation. King James translation is before of old ordained to this uh, condemnation. So this is this is very strong language, um, and, and the fact. Um, 
and, and it kind of brings out this idea of passing over. I actually, and you can wrestle with this, at least my own thinking process, the idea of passing over is kind of weak when you actually look at these texts. I mean, rejection actually seems to me like it, it fits what the scripture is saying a little bit more, a little bit better. Um, W.S. Reed offers a shorter definition. This is in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. He says it refers to the fact that God has eternally condemned the non-elect to eternal punishment for their sin. Um, so, so uh, again, what is emphasized here is there's a determination on God's part, a determination long before the world came into being. And the object of this determination is election. And in this case, it's not election, but condemnation. Another text would be 1 Peter 2.8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. To this doom, they were also appointed. Uh, Thomas Schreiner, and this is in your notes, I think has a helpful comment on this. Uh, he, he writes, God has not only appointed that those who disobey the word would stumble and fall. He has also determined that they would disbelieve and stumble. The idea that calamity also comes from God is often taught in the Old Testament. I will cite three representative examples, since to modern people, the idea is quite shocking. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Lamentations 3.38. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Amos 3.6. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Isaiah 45.7. The, the worldview of the scriptures is that God is sovereignly in control of all things, from the decision made by kings to the throw of the dice. Well, in light of that, let me uh, suggest three observations. And these are, um, the, first, the first two are from the Puritan Thomas Manton. He writes, it's an eternal decree. God's internal acts are the same with his essence, and therefore before all time, as believers are elected to all, before all worlds, Ephesians 1, 4, so are sinners reprobated. They are both in time and order before ever the creature was. Romans 9, 11, before the children had done either good or evil, it was said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Election and reprobation are not a thing of yesterday, but from all eternity. And then a second observation, again, from Thomas Manton. This decree is founded in his own good will and pleasure. For there being nothing higher and greater than God, um, God's actions do all begin in himself, and his will is a supreme reason, Matthew eleven twenty six. Even so, Father, because it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus would give no other reason why the gospel was hidden from wise and imprudent and revealed unto babes. And then a, a, a third observation, which is not in your notes. Uh, this is from Louis Burkhoff. He says, it's important that the decree of God, whereby he has determined to pass some men by with the operation of a special grace, not be viewed as an act of injustice, but rather God's sovereign will. Many of us glory in the doctrine of election because we're persuaded that if it wasn't for election, we would never be saved. We would never be converted. Um, one criticism of election, which could also be made of reprobation, um, it's not quite fair. 
for God to choose some out of the generality of, of mankind, um, that determines some should be saved and some should be passed over. Um, what, what does God think he's doing here? Thomas Manton wrote, we are apt to reprehend what we cannot comprehend. If God has not revealed to me why he is acting in a certain way, I may not believe him. But his point is God has revealed that he is acting in this way, and therefore to the extent that I believe that he is and I believe that it's clear from Scripture, I, I should submit to that and I, I, I should um, respond to that in a positive way. And let me just kind of revisit this one point. We've been this, down this road a little bit also. There is a tendency, I think, when you consider election and or reprobation, and here's the generality of mankind, they are lost and they are unsaved, and here God comes along and he determines to save some and not others. I think there is a tendency for you and I to say, that is not quite fair, or that's not quite right, or that is not quite just, for God to choose some and pass over others. Now, when you or I begin to think about what God should do that is just or right or fair, we need to be very careful. Because if he was dealing with you and I on the basis of what we deserve, on the basis of what is just, and on the basis of what is fair, guess what? We're all done. We're all destined for eternal wrath. We all deserve it. In our most sober thinking, we understand we deserve eternal punishment. And it's grace. It's undeserved. Grace is undeserved. So we need to be careful when we're thinking, well, this is not fair, or this is not right for God to, to operate in this way. So um, there you go. Um, and I hope that's helpful to your thinking process. And, and primarily we're talking about really the flip side of election and God's determination really to pass by some and leave them in their sins and to punish them for their sins. And in that case, his justice is glorified. So, shall we pray? Father, thank you this morning for your word. I, I pray you would take what we have considered and you would apply it to our own hearts and souls and give us understanding as we would just process what your word says about how you operate in this world. I, I pray that you would cause us to uh, come to it with um, believing hearts and submissive hearts. And uh, I pray the effect of our time together this morning would be for your honor and your glory it would be helpful to our own thinking process about how you as the the chief ruler of the universe operates. I, I pray you would take these scriptures that we have considered, apply them uh, to our own hearts for your honor and for your glory. And Lord, we pray this morning as we would gather together for worship that you would um, help us, uh, you would um, work very clearly and signally in our midst and that our, our fellowship in the meantime would be sweet and precious. We thank you for the time together and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm -hmm. you.